0: Hey everyone, welcome to Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. First off, I need to hang a lampshade on this lamp. Why can't we hear Dave's feet when he walks around? He has to wear special shoes developed for the Illuminati base that don't trigger any sound uh, triggers. I I don't understand it. It's super science. I don't get it. I'm just a producer. You know, it's it's, a... the nerds have to wear them too. I I, I have to put them on. They're kind of like booties. They're like, they have these elastic bands. I don't know, it's some sort of like Illuminati technology from the 70s. It looks really goofy, and that's why we don't like take pictures of it because it looks dumb. Um, it's kind of like in Star Wars when Grand Moff Tarkin's walking around in slippers. They don't show his feet because Peter Cushing didn't want to wear those, I don't know, imperial boots. They hurt his feet, so he walked around in slippers. You're not going to see anyone's feats at Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans or hear them either because of stealth technology from the 70s. Four feet. On with the show. So hey, I'm here talking to you and welcoming you to episode two of Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. It's a busy time on a working farm, so I have to really kind of keep Dave going to get him to record episodes. Since he's finishing up his chores now, I thought uh it might be a good idea to have him talk about goats. You love goats, don't you? Everyone loves goats. If not, maybe you shouldn't be listening to something called underground goat shenanigans. And uh stay with us till the end of the show and we have some uh something awesome to offer to you who, you know, if you live in the greater Portland area, you might be interested. If you're visiting Portland, you might be interested in this as well. So stay tuned to the very end, and uh, Dave will talk about some stuff that I think you're going to be pretty uh, excited about if you want to learn more about Portland. So uh, yeah, no, um, let's catch up with Dave over there in the pasture right now.
1: Hey everybody, this is David, and this is The Goats. So I thought maybe today we'd talk a little bit about the two things that sort of make up this show, or the title of the show, at least. Goats and or shenanigans. So if you've listened to this podcast before, uh, you realize that uh, I live on a goat farm, and... Oh, oh Sorry head scratches before podcasting. You also know that um, I inherited this uh, farm from my Uncle Owen. Well, he wasn't really my uncle, but he's he fits somewhere in the family. I mean, even my grandparents, who were much older than him, called him Uncle. Um, but I'm not even sure which side of the family he's from. He was like a friend on both sides of the family. He was just like always there, this guy hippie guy who had goats, and then when he passed on he left it all to me for some reason oh, that, and there was a secret Illuminati base underground underneath the goat farm but, uh, I get ahead of myself on that one okay, here, let me, uh, close this gate, okay, got them all locked up here oop, okay, head rubs, head rubs So when I inherited the farm, I learned the first rule is that no matter what time you feed a goat, it thinks you are at least 15 minutes late. I also learned the sacred oath of a a goat farmer. Goats will poop in their water, and it is my job to judge them. Okay, I'm walking to the barn here. So uh, yeah, a... uh, city slicker from California, moving up to Oregon and becoming a goat farmer, I learned a lot about goats. I mean, (laughs) we went up to Oregon a couple times when I was a kid and saw the goat farm and I thought it was relatively cool then, although, you know, the goats were as big as me. Uh, I remember once I accidentally let a whole bunch of goats out and uh, they ran away and, you know, I must have been 11, but I was kind of that You know, I was that kid. So I I turned to my uncle and I said, you only think I am incompetent because you're comparing me with people who know what they're doing. And he laughed and he said, no, Dave, I don't think you're incompetent. I think you're free labor. I guess you get what you pay for. Okay, uh, let me just seal up the barn here. So we got a lot of questions about the goats actually. Um, people sent us an email asking what type of goats are they? They are Nubians. Now, if you don't know what a Nubian is, they're the ones that get oh about three, three and a half feet at their head. They're not the little tiny goats that um, that people put in pajamas. And they're not painting goats, by the way. So a true fact, fainting goats are actually a genetic error, mistake, or something. That Because, you know, obviously, if a goat is in the wild and it gets attacked by a predator and faints, well, it's over. I mean, I guess you could say it's playing possum, but possums play possum so well. Um, so we did get some questions, though, about fainting goats, even though ours aren't fainting goats. And the Illuminati, and they asked, were you know fading goats a product of Illuminati experiment? I'm still looking into that, but uh I think so, but I found no evidence. So I get a lot of questions too, you know, what do we feed them and can a goat eat a tin can? Well, I can tell you absolutely even goats on top of an Illuminati secret base cannot eat tin cans. So where that idea came from is actually tin cans used to be put together with glue that they would glue the bottom on and the top on and goats would tear that open, get whatever's in the can, but they'd also try to tear open the empty cans and they would eat the glue. So they will eat a lot of things just not tin cans. And no if you're thinking I didn't try to feed them Many, maybe one. They didn't eat it. Uh, we do, however. I uh, go into the the nearest city here, uh, Oleander, Oregon. Don't try to find it on maps, you, you all. That's a, that should have been my first sign that something bizarre was going on here. That you can't find this little town on the maps. But uh, I'll talk more about o- Oleander on another day. I get hay and alfalfa pellets. Uh, so they they eat quite a bit. And they poop quite a bit. And they often poop in their water. And I have been told over and over again, it is my sacred duty not to complain about this or judge them. Sometimes I do. I'm not a really good farmer when it comes to not judging goats for pooing in their water, but I'm working on it. We actually have a support group, a webpage and everything on that. It's called I love my goat even if it poops in its water.com. We're working on a new name. So the question that I get the most is, or one of the questions is, well, can I have a goat? And I suppose you can, but this is usually asked to me by people who live in apartments and it's probably not a good idea. And yes, I agree, goats are adorable and they are cute, but they are also herd animals. You just, you can't have one goat. You have to have two. Now you could, you know, if you want to spend 24 hours with the goat, or I've heard of goats, you know, bonding with cats, dogs, or or, or horses. But yeah, if you leave one goat alone, they're, they are such herd animals, they will literally go crazy trying to find a way to escape and be with their herd. Okay, um, goat trivia time now. So I'm sure you've heard the term, got your goat. So what that happens is, goats, like I said, are herd animals. And so in the 20s and the 30s, when they're doing horse racing, they would basically bond a racehorse with a goat and they would become their sort of friends and become their own little herd because you could lead the goat. It was easier to get the goat to go somewhere and the horse would follow. And so what would happen in gangsters when they would try to to influence a horse race, they would steal that horse's goat to make him upset so that it couldn't win the race. So that's where the term got your goat comes from. And you may want to use that in your next 1920s or 1930s Call of Cthulhu adventure. Okay, um, so I'm in the barn and there are no goats here, but, well, you heard of them. Two just walked in and they didn't walk through the door. We closed the door, they they walked through the walls. And this is Solomon and Sonia. Uh, these are the goats that kind of led me to the Illuminati base. And uh, they do things that normal goats don't do, like, Blow in the dark and walk through walls. Uh, they also don't seem to be aging. They should be about a year, but they're about the size of six months. But you know that's okay. If you guys don't grow up, uh, you know I want you guys to say you know you know kids forever because uh, you know when when goats are little they have all the good things of kittens and puppies, but when they grow up they can be kind of a stinker. So. You guys can just stay, stay kids forever. Yeah, but they, they led me to the the secret underground base, and and you know I've given up trying to keep them in a pen because you know if you can walk through the walls, there's just nothing you can do. Yeah, just uh, put a tag on them, and if they wander off, you know, hopefully that they can walk through a ca- a wall if a car hits them, and the car will go right through it too. So. Um, yeah, we just got to be careful with these two when they they wander around. But uh they're the ones that showed me the secret elevator to the uh to the underground base. So um let's go ahead um let's uh go into a little bit of Illuminati shenanigans, but before we do that, uh let's talk about something.
0: Leo There you have a real slice of life working on a goat farm. Well, if that goat farm was on top of a secret underground Illuminati base. Now I hear Dave talk about the most unlikely role-playing game setting and why it's uh, so popular. Um, Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Seriously, this is one of my favorite role-playing games of all time.
1: When it comes to tabletop role-playing games, no one really disputes that the 800-pound dragon in the room, of course, is Dungeons & Dragons. But there's been a game that has been out almost as long as D&D, and that is Call of Cthulhu. In fact, there are quite a few Call Cthulhu-based or inspired role-playing game, the Trail of Cthulhu, uh, Cthulhu Tech, uh, GURPS had a Cthulhu Punk, you know, even the original D and D Deities and Demigods had, you know, the Cthulhu Mythos there, and in a way, that seems kind of surprising, you know even third edition Call of Cthulhu had a a comic strip in the back about explaining why people how Call of Cthulhu was different than other games. Like if you steal something it's likely to kill you. You know, that you sit around hours just trying to use Latin to break a code or something. And in ways I find not that of course I completely get that somebody would make a Call of Cthulhu inspired role playing game but what surprised me is that it sells so well and one of the selling points is it's a percentile game Uh, and it's pretty much moved to straight percentiles now with uh, stats and skills so it's a simple easy game in fact you know the skeleton game that it's used is called, you know, the basic role playing system. So it's ease. But then again, there's so many things that I would think that would be against it as a role playing game. One of them is that Lovecraft tries his hardest, and the people who followed him try their hardest to make these un describable horrors and now you've got a game master or a keeper as they're called in the game whose job is to describe these you've got books now whose job is to codify what these creatures are you give them material stats wounds and strength to something that might be immaterial on this plane to be honest you know, I bought my first copy of third edition called Cthulhu because I wanted a list and I wanted of all the creatures and monsters in the Cthulhu mythos. I think that I probably only played it four or five times after I bought it, but I kept using it as a reference manual. And let's face it, next to I hate to say this, August Derelith who preserved Lovecraft's writings in Arkham House. That's the part that kind of bothers me. But, well, if you know who August Derleth is, you've been there. But well, maybe we'll discuss this on a, a, another podcast. But here's the thing. Next to Arkham House and Derleth, the Call of Cthulhu game did the most to get out to the masses populace of pop culture what Lovecraft was all about. You know, you had D&D in the early 80s, and you had a couple TSR games, Boot Hill, and the original Top Secret, all of which had some really wonky game mechanics. I mean, there were a lot of games out there, but, you know, the main ones that you could get, you know, a relatively easy were, you know, Traveler, or fossas, Star Trek. You could special order villains and vigilantes in the back of the Dragon magazine. And I don't have financial records to to boost this, but from my experience and people that I've talked to, the game that really sort of came the closest, and it still was a distant second, to Dungeons & Dragons in the early 80s, was Call of Cthulhu. But it did introduce to thousands and thousands of future fans the writings of Lovecraft. In ways, it was kind of the anti-D&D. If you went into this game with the same Dungeons & Dragons mentality that you, you used and worked for you in Dungeons & Dragons or Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, you were going to get your investigator killed or driven crazy early call cthulhu not only sort of punished you by trying to use weapons and shoot your way out because there were so many things that could not be shot out you know you could get gangsters but or you know cultists but an armed cultist or a gangster was about as you know Combat savvy and capable in combat as the average investigator. It also sort of punished players in the first editions because not only did you have to spend points to learn guns like handguns or rifles, but the first version you had to put in points, the types of guns, the M11, you know, M1911 45, or a Luger, or whatever. You had to, so. You would end up if you were picking up a gun that you found, it probably wasn't a gun you had skill at, even if you were a really good high you know skill in shooting in other types of guns. Spells were not magic missile and fireballs of D and D, but there are long ritual summings that could drive you crazy and possibly you know would take you know energy from you. But didn't have usually that instant gratification of being able to smite your enemy. It was also default set in the 1920s. And, you know, in the 80s, most of my friends and most nerds that at least I'm aware of, what they knew about the 1920s was, you know, Al Capone, maybe watched old episodes of The Untouchables, and, you know, that piece of an action that the Star Trek episode where they went back to the planet full of gangsters the 1920s just didn't have I think the draw that it does now that we're entering the 2020s the whole recycling of the pulp era didn't come back until you know Raiders of the Lost Ark and where I could see that an Indiana Jones pulp type adventure uh would, would have some appeal, the game wasn't really marketed that way. There were a few scenarios that had, you know, jungle expeditions, but most of them were in an urban or rural American setting. So it didn't focus on the, the running, jumping, climbing skills of, say, a pulp version of Tomb Raider. Uh, Now, of course, the Keeper could always run something like that, but I think the game thought, and many Keepers did, that if you really focused on that type of an adventure, then you were subtracting from the spirit of the game, from what it was trying to be. Now, back in... Uh, 1984 before I mean Chaosium came out in 1981 but I didn't really have access to their game so in 1984 I bought a copy of TSR's Gangbusters and I changed it from a crime fighting setting to a you know pulp adventure tropical island uh, zombie adventures I ran it a couple times uh, and to be honest it didn't really have the mechanics to pull something off like that you didn't get skills until after you had some experience points but it, it does show that that there was a market for it now we now have, you know, we have chaosiums called Cthulhu, and, you know, we have Trail Cthulhu, but we also have Cthulhu Pulp, which a character is not going to survive one-on-one combat with Cthulhu, or Azathoth, or Naira Lahotep. You're just going to get eaten. And, in fact, the humans are some of the weakest of the creatures in any of these worlds, but at least it gives you kind of a more of a chance for your characters to more capture that sort of 1920s pulp flavor. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Call Cthulhu. I love mystery games. I love the idea of maybe doing an entire game without firing a shot but at the same point I don't think a lot of the people in 1980s or even up to now who are really sort of into the combat role playing aspects would find Call of Cthulhu a good fit so why did this game last nearly 40 decades and it's going strong. In fact, maybe even is strongest right now. Well, one thing I think is because there is so much rich tapestry in um, the Cthulhu mythos or as Lovecraft himself used to call it, Yog sagothary And So there is these creatures, these characters. We have really filled out the 1920s. We understand that, but we've got now the 30s and pulp. We've got World War II. Uh, We've got uh, Cold War. Uh, We've got you know modern times. We've got several different settings in space, so there is a lot more variety now. Uh, To to take these Cthulhu creatures, but also Lovecraftian tropes, such as the old house, uh, the decadent family secrets. Uh, So it uses tropes as well as game mechanics. Now, if you're a hack and slack role player, that's fine. There are many things added to provide for those type of games. Uh, and including, I love, uh, Mophius's new Conan Age of Adventure game where both Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft and many other people's mythos is written right into it and in that they've got not only in the basic rules, but they've got books just dedicated to those, especially the the Cthulhu mythos that Robert E. Howard wrote since he created Conan. And call Cthulhu it does require a higher degree of sophistication of role playing. It's you're not rewarded for being a murder hobo. You're not Rewarded for being a combat monkey, you could have some of the best military stats possible, and you're going to be swallowed whole, whole by a, a doll or a, a a servitor of the outer gods. There's, it does require a more sophistication of gameplay to uh, to enjoy. Now before. I get onto the why I think the real reason that Call of Cthulhu has survived so long as a game, I would be remiss to point out that Gary Gygax and the guys that created Dungeons & Dragons loved Lovecraft. They loved Clark Ashton Smith. They loved Robert E. Howard. So, yes, there are a lot of... Cthulhu-inspired points in D&D. The Mind Flayer is basically a small wingless Cthulhu. So, yes, definitely, you know there is influences of the Lovecraft circle, and especially the original D&D, but. If you could go out and be an elf and stab things with impunity or a thief and steal things, why would you be, why would you want to be a human whose magic might kill him, who doesn't know how to shoot different types of pistols? Why would you want to play Call Cthulhu? And I think I finally figured it out. After all these years, I think I figured out the allure of the game. Besides the setting, which I love, which is what got me in it. Call of Cthulhu offers something you don't see in most role-playing games, unless you've got a very inspired, sophisticated game master. And that is downright spooky fears. The truth is, Dracula's not going to kill me. Zombies probably aren't going to eat me. And, you know, Azathoth isn't going to manifest in my bedroom and vaporize me with his presence. But in this game, there is a concrete fear. You know, in movies and books, the writers try to pull at the fear of, of readers or... A watchers mind but you can only go so much by giving them tropes but also inspiration and, and sort of ideas of fear you can threaten a beloved character in a book as a writer and that will bring dread but nothing brings dread like being there and so Dracula is not going to kill me. But he has tried to kill me in Call of Cthulhu game. You know, that's the thing that I think people... And remember, too, the 80s were going through a horror resurgent, both in books and movies. And the books and the movies, they can go so far. But to really put you in the mindset of the people... It has to be something more. You have to become that character that's being threatened. And I think that and the fact that, you know, maybe the treasure wasn't this bag of gold. The treasure was knowing that the earth isn't going to be blown up on Thursday. That sort of feeling that you feel that you've saved the world, but, you know, you're on to your next case. That is what I think allowed Call Cthulhu to continue for so long, up like I said, next year will be 40th anniversary. And you can do that in other games. Absolutely. I run a very scary, I think, Dungeons & Dragons game. But it's not as scary when you see a deep one when there are elves, dwarves, all sorts of sea monsters and dragons out there. There's something about these creatures coming to your reality, whether it's your reality of now or your reality of a hundred years ago that you're you're playing, your character setting, it makes it scary. And that's why this game has endured. Well, I hope that uh, you enjoyed this and I would, I would suggest maybe test your nerves a little bit and play a game of Call of Cthulhu
0: and it's db again uh, so if you haven't checked out any of the many lovecraft influenced tabletop role-playing games out there i i, I would recommend I, I, any of them any of them uh well two in particular i highly recommend i i highly recommend chaosium's the call of cthulhu written by sandy peterson originally and uh, everyone else who then later went to go right on the seven uh, editions after that, and then of course Trail of Cthulhu, uh, put out by Pelgrane Press, and written by Ken Hyde. And if you know who Ken Hyde is, you obviously like role-playing games or have listened to my podcast. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so there's there's a few others out there worth uh, taking a look at too. Uh, so. Dave talks about goats earlier in the show, and now it's going to be the time to talk about shenanigans. It's almost like those wacky Illuminati seem to live to prank people and say dumb dad jokes. Hmm. I don't. I would say that it's uh some kind of future sh. Uh, f- uh, what's what's that word? Uh, floor shadowing, shore shadowing, foreshadowing. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. On with the show.
1: Okay, so I hope you kind of liked our little primer about the Call of Cthulhu game, a little bit of its history and what makes it different and the appeal it has uh, from, from other games. So, uh, finished up all the chores. I'm in the underground base, uh, the sort of what used to be their, calm, uh, their communications room, uh, the comm center. And uh, I've freshened it up. I call it the Dave Cave. So, we uh, talked about ghosts, let's talk about shenanigans. Now, as near as I can tell, the Illuminati was this evil organization bent to take over the world, but it also had this bizarre sense of humor. I mean, I've still got the, the computer here that they left after they took off into space, And, you know, its hobby basically is sending someone a $12,000 bill for a shirt. It thinks it's funny. I try to get it to stop, but um, I've got to work on this collection agency that's trying to bill me for the shirt right now first. So uh, one of of the nerds, Melvin here, and I kind of worry about Melvin. I probably shouldn't say this, you know, over the air, but Melvin... uh, found this button and if you want to if you want to get a nerd to push a button paint it red and then paint on it do not push and guess what they're going to push that button so melvin he i think he would have pushed this button anyways because apparently the button said it was a cow tipper and according to melvin it allowed you to tip cows at long distance So he was going to try to tip cows in Nebraska from here, from Oregon. But what happened is he pushed the button, and then out of nowhere in front of the cows was $3 and a note saying, keep up the good work. It gave them a tip as opposed to tip them over. And and I can only think that this whole thing was planned by the Illuminati to take off in their spaceships just so that they can have a, a joke on Melvin, the, uh, the Oregon nerd. I mean, it's become very clear to me that the Illuminati has... They, they basically created the dad joke. So oh, I'm sure the dad joke has something to try to take over the world. That's why they invented it. Uh, those of you who might have heard of some of my previous adventures where I discovered a boat underground, you know, it was in a room marked seven C apostrophe S. It was the seven C's. You know, yeah, uh, I'm kind of glad the Illuminati have left the earth uh, with their sense of humor. I am sure that this is fake, but if you go through some of the, the documentation we found here, the Illuminati claim to have created the platypus as a joke. uh they also claim to have created Gary Busey as a joke, and maybe that one might I kind of see the Illuminati just from the things that I'm finding from them as their sort of joker with a twelve year old's mentality, and that's kind of scary to think that they might have been ruling and secretly controlling the world since my birth or beyond, but uh, one of the things that they claim you know, is that they contacted Alan Moore and gave him, you know, the killing joke for, you know, his his famous Batman comic, but that you know, if someone read that joke, they would have actually died laughing so he, he changed it to the the inmates of the flashlight joke I mean they just did weird things you know here's a a computer monitor you can watch any cat in China you can spy on any cat in China with this system but that's all it does and what did they do they of course they called it the Peking Tom I mean we are talking about the people who said that they canceled Firefly as a joke I am thinking, from what I can find, what's left over, that the Illuminati, what I referred as Illuminati, which seemingly referred to themselves as the Illuminati, but they might have been joking, were actually uh, worshippers of the Greek goddess Eris, who was the goddess of strife and conflict. Um, and... From what i can piece together they were discordians or you know followers of Eris, and so they did things that they thought were funny that were harmful to other people or society because they thought that's how society could grow so yeah that's it for this program uh we had you know goats And we talked about Illuminati shenanigans, and uh, where I'm underground, so I guess that covered all three, and I'm Dave, so, hey, till we see you next time. Well,
0: that's it for the show, everyone. Thank you so much for... What? What? No, 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 Dave's supposed to do that part. He didn't do that part? You want me to do that part? (sighs) Ah. Okay, well, I guess I am uh, the only one with a microphone here. I hate this bass. I, uh, I, I, I'm i not even going to go to it. I'm not even going to... Okay, so the mind behind Doug's, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, David Heath, is offering free, absolutely free tours of downtown Portland. These will be arranged by... Um, <clears throat> These will be arranged by time that people want to go to them. So contact Dave and uh, arrange a time. Um, I'm just trying to read the copy. Um, Okay. But for right now, limited to Fridays and Saturdays, see the world-famous Powell's world of books, voodoo donuts, and also some things, even some of the locals know about such as love joy columns that's cool are all over um are left over from a security guard over 60 years ago okay so the love joy columns a uh and dave will tell you about it dave will tell you about it uh, part of the uh battleship oregon and where the kingsmen recorded their classic louis louis i used to walk past there every day on my way to culinary school back in the 90s um learn how a city a hundred miles from the coast got named Portland. Uh see Virgil Earp's grave and many more things absolutely free. Just connect us on your Facebook page at Dave's Underground oh connect with us on your Facebook page at Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, Facebook HQ or at um I don't know. Uh, you can try and contact Dave through... Uh, I, I I only know the Facebook page is as, as, as the best way to do it, but I, I think that would be a good way to do it. And, yeah, no, Dave knows all kinds of things and is a cool stand-up guy. So, you know, I I, I might check this out. I mean, I'm a native Portlander. I know this place pretty well, but, you know, I, let, let me tell you, Shanghai Tunnels... And they're just steam vents from, uh, back, uh, bootleggers used them. But, yeah, there was no Shanghain, like, how you think Shanghain works. All parts of this episode that were not filmed in an underground secret base underneath a goat farm were filmed
1: at Badger's Drift Studios in beautiful North Portland.